Welcome to Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare, the show that shares stories, experiences, and advice from notable and innovative leaders in healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Leah Witchick. Julie Drury is the strategic lead patient partnership for the Canadian Foundation for Healthcare Improvement. Julie is passionate about the potential of patient family caregiver engagement, partnership, and leadership in health and healthcare. In her professional role, she facilitates and provides the patient family perspective and supports frameworks and strategies for authentic patient partnership in healthcare policy, system design, innovation, and quality improvement. Prior to joining CFHI, Julie was a career public servant who worked as a senior advisor and director in strategic policy, planning, operational management, and reporting across many different files. With an emphasis on building and leading policy strategies in collaboration with intersectoral partners and teams. She developed the Federal Tobacco Control Strategy, the framework and strategy for including persons with lived experience into the policy direction of the Federal Opioids Task Force, and developed a multi-layered provincial engagement strategy and the Provincial Patient Declaration of Values as the former chair of the Minister's Patient and Family Advisory Council for Ontario. Julie serves as a board director with Mito Canada Foundation, Closing the Gap Healthcare, and the National Centre of Excellence, SKIP, Solutions for Kids in Pain. She is a patient partner with the Rare Disease Foundation, Canadian Medical Association Patient Voice, and the chair of the Provincial Pediatric Palliative Care Family Advisory Committee. As the mother of a child who was diagnosed with SIFD, a rare form of mitochondrial disease, Julie has particular experience in system navigation, complex care, care coordination, palliative care, and patient safety. With over 12 years of experience as patient family advisor and leader, Julie is a sought-after speaker, panelist, and facilitator. She regularly consults with healthcare organizations, government, private sector, and not-for-profits as an expert advisor on patient engagement strategies, environments, patient partnership, and patient leadership. Hello, Julie. Thank you for being here. How are you today? I'm great, Leah. I really appreciate the invitation to talk with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. I have been really looking forward to our conversation. And I was thinking to get us started, if you don't mind just sharing a little bit about your story, because you've had quite uh, an interesting journey and one that I know has uh, had a lot of personal impact for you. Um, so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share a little bit about that. Yeah, no, thanks for asking. So I mean, we're, we're having a conversation today about, you know, patient engagement and, and partnership and leadership. And I, I guess, you know, that, that background story that you're looking for is really about what led me to this work. Um, I am the mom of a soon-to-be 13-year-old daughter um, who actually passed away when she was eight, so five years ago. Um, Kate was born with mm. a, a rare form of mitochondrial disease, but at the time, um, we didn't have a diagnosis. It took about four and a half years to diagnose her. 
So she lived with a lot of um, medical complexity, frequent hospitalizations, lots of specialists involved in her care. Uh, we were patients at uh, two different hospitals in Ontario, a hospital in Montreal, and, uh, and in the States as well at the Mayo Clinic. So I saw a lot of the healthcare system. I met a lot of doctors. I met a lot of nurses. Uh, I saw very much how um, patients flowed or did not flow through the system and some of the challenges that family caregivers faced. And uh, I became involved as a, what you would call a patient and family advisor to our hospital and advising on things that worked and didn't work for families in hospital. And uh, I came to it naturally because of my background in public policy. So I actually um, have a background working in across the healthcare system in policy and strategic planning. And, uh, and the two sort of aligned really well, this experience with the healthcare system and wanting to affect change and, uh, and this background and, you know, how do you make change? What does change look like in, 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 um, in health and in healthcare policy? Uh, and so, you know, over the over the years, 12 years of doing this work, I worked with um, healthcare organizations, uh, provincial um, healthcare systems, ministers of health, national organizations, federal organizations, uh, ranging from, um, you know, organizational leaders in healthcare policy to um, uh, colleges that that train healthcare providers. And uh, anything from being an advisor to a mentor to a coach to a keynote speaker or, or panel facilitator and everything in between. Um, and and uh, it's really be, become uh, a passion for me. Um, we experienced a significant amount of great care in the system, but we also experienced a lot of harm and patient safety in the system. And so I see you know, the, the, the both ends of the spectrum where things can go really well in health and healthcare and, and what uh, criteria help to build that and I've also seen what can go really wrong in health and healthcare, and uh, and the impacts that that can have on patients and families. Hmm. What an interesting journey and uh, I, I just want to highlight um, my condolences for the loss of your daughter and I have to assume that some of those experiences, your own lived experience and the lived experience of your family and your daughter um, have contributed to that that passion that you have right now in terms of the work that you're doing. I'm curious to know along the way, at what point did you decide that this was your path? Yeah, I'm not sure that I decided that. Okay. I think that, yeah, it's a great question, right? Like, you know, I don't think I've really thought about it before. Uh, as I said, I've always really been involved in health and healthcare policy, Every, everything from uh, smoking cessation programs and tobacco control programs to sustainable development and environmental health to um, bringing lived experience um, into um, an opioids task force federally and working with persons who had an habituation to, to drugs to be able to build with them policy. So I've always been really interested in this, in this space of what does it look like to engage the public in creating policy and how do you bring together collaborative teams with everyone at the table to make sure that what you're putting forward to, ch to change things um, in the health environment is done in a really effective and efficient way. So the, the emphasis for me on the role of patients, families, and caregivers in the system, of course, was a natural fit because of my extensive experiences with my daughter. I mean, 
I, I came to know the healthcare system quite intimately. I learned the jargon. I understood the rules. I understand the structures everywhere from, you know, a hospital environment all the way up to how our provincial healthcare systems are structured across the country. And, and they're all very unique and different. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it was so much a, a, a strict decision, Leah. I think it was more of an evolution for me. And, and it actually very much parallels this evolution that we're seeing in patient engagement and patient partnership across the country and how it really is shifting conversations. So I saw opportunity where there were gaps in the system to elevate that conversation, to change the conversation and to mentor and coach organizations to really understand that patients, families, and caregivers could really support them in um, effecting positive change and improve structures and better patient-centered care. And I didn't see that happening. So I I saw an opportunity for someone like myself to, to come in and help to support that change. Hmm. I think that's brilliant because uh, what I take from that is that desire to um, support that change, but use your own lived experience and your own, uh, like you said, the intimate knowledge that you had of the healthcare system and use that to enact change. And, you know, one of the things you said a moment ago was really interesting around often we have that focus on all of the things that go well in healthcare and all of the things that go right and the positive uh, uh, results from that. And at the same time, there is a tremendous amount of harm that um, is done and can be done along the way. Um, and I, I'm just curious to hear a little bit about that that relationship between the two. What does that mean for you? I have experienced both. And so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll use my story alongside Kate's to sort of, you know, offer you some, some illustrative points there. So the first is... Um, you know, as Kate was going through her healthcare journey as a, as a young child, as a toddler, um, with no diagnosis, um, with a lot of um, episodic events where she required acute hospitalization and sometimes critical care in the ICU, uh, we had no quarterback in the system. The quarterback, the communicator, the one who tied all the pieces together was me. Mm. And that changed at three years of age when there was a pilot program started at the hospital called the Coordination of Complex Care Program. And we met the director of that program, the medical director, who took Kate under her wing. And she was the one who became the quarterback in care. She connected the specialist. She triaged the test. She made sure that when Kate came to the emergency department, there was a flag on the file and that people knew her her story, her history, and suggested interventions well in advance of me having to describe that as a mom. And that's what goes really well in the system. Um, it's a strong right. example where, where you are um, organizing care around the patient and around the family and quarterbacking that care. And, and you know, in direct uh, opposition to that, mm. um, Kate underwent a bone marrow transplant when she was seven years old. And she came out underneath the wing of the complex care program. She came under the um, um, uh, under the directive of another program area because of her her um, categorization now as a bone marrow transplant or stem cell recipient. And so we lost that quarterback role. Mm-hmm. And because of losing that role, I became thrust again into that role of coordinator and trying to rally. Uh, teams and communicate and uh, and doing that you know with with teams that I didn't know well providers that I didn't know well providers that didn't know me and and you can probably hear in there Leah the the theme of lack of trust lack of partnership lack of continuity 
um, and quite frankly, it resulted in significant harm to Kate. And so after her death, we went through about a year and a half of patient safety investigations into what happened to my daughter, um, the impact on her care and ultimately on her death and, and on our family. And, um, you know, again, the good of the system came around again where we were listened to, we partnered in that, in that patient safety investigation, and we were part of making significant change in both practice and policy to a couple of the hospitals that, where, where Kate was a patient and where we were, you know, families were quite present. Uh, and so, you know, using just those two lived experiences in and of themselves has given me extensive insight into, as I said before, what can go well and what can go horribly wrong mm -hmm. and what lies in between and the incredible um, amount of knowledge that families have in their lived experience to contribute back to the system. That's incredibly powerful. And uh, I want to just acknowledge you uh, uh, for all the d devastation that I hear you and your family went through and Kate as well. And also the ability to uh, try and use that and, and, as you said, be successful in enacting those changes, those policy changes and those practice changes that needed to happen. I can only imagine how challenging of a journey this has been for you. Um, what I'm wondering then is what have you learned about yourself throughout that journey that maybe serves you now? I appreciate the acknowledgement of how difficult it is to share. I mean, you're probably hearing in my my voice and what I'm sharing with you a bit of trepidation. I don't often talk about Kate anymore. I'm quite sensitive and, and guarded in sharing her story. I've shared it so many times, Leah, in spaces where um, there hasn't been a compassion approach to hearing her story, where there hasn't necessarily been active listening or listening with purpose and intent to make change. Um, and where, quite frankly, we've been simply re-traumatized by sharing the details of her story. So I'm always reluctant. Um, and, mm -hmm. and I think people are respectful of that because really it's not anymore about Kate's story. It's about, you know, what I've lived through and what I can deliver back to the system. I think what I've I've learned, and I think it's a characteristic that I I have uh, I already had because of my experience and working with me across the policy sector um, in a federal, provincial, and territorial context. But I, I learned very much how to adapt and work with uh, a diverse amount of people. I mean, we literally met hundreds of healthcare providers throughout Kate's journey. Every one of them a different type of person. Some of them really pragmatic, some of them very direct, some of them aloof and cold, some of them engaging and compassionate, some of them um, willing to, you know, to work together and, and others who wanted to just basically do to or for Kate and, and not with. And so I learned to work with a lot of different people. I learned to, um, you know, sit back and observe and, and um, allow people their space to share their story and their perspective and their reflections because I saw the the in the power um that that occurred for myself as a as a medical mom and a family caregiver when i was permitted to do that so if i was able to do that myself now in this professional context that i'm in of of helping to support patient engagement patient partnership i find that it really changes the conversation and inviting people to share um, I think one of the ways that I characterize myself and, and how I've been shaped with my experience with Kate and the work I've been doing is what I um, call gently fierce. And anybody who knows me knows that I like to use that hashtag gently fierce. So I don't back down. I do push. I do have extremely strong values and principles about 
right and wrong um, in this healthcare space, but I'm gentle about sharing those um, values and those principles and inviting others to um, examine them as well and to think about them as well and to turn them over in their mind's eye and think about how they can improve the healthcare system alongside and in partnership and collaboration with patients, families, and caregivers. But I don't abide tokenism and I don't abide, um, you know, this idea of, you know, bringing patients in to look at a, fu a fully baked cake. Um, I, I, I'm fierce about that. Um, but I do it in a very supportive and collaborative way. And, and again, those, that's really been how I've been shaped by both being Kate's mom, uh, because you couldn't back down, you had to champion for your child, but also in working across, um, you know, multiple layers of the healthcare system with many different people. That's so interesting what you're saying about being gently fierce, because I think it's such a perfect illustration of what needs to happen throughout the system. Um, like you're, you're championing it as an individual and there's such impact in that. And it makes me wonder if everyone could be gently fierce, what could be accomplished within healthcare. Yeah. I mean, it, it really comes to, um, leadership and a willingness to lead in ways that we're not accustomed to. Um, you know, recently was speaking with a, um, a pan-Canadian um, uh, board director, and she was reflecting on this in a, in a presentation she was doing, that we need to start to break outside the box of how we typically do things and be a bit fierce about it. Be gentle and inviting to others, but to lead from this space of having to, to shift our thinking um, what I often see in healthcare is a repackaging of the, of the same things, the same pillars, the same people, the same types of tables where we consult and where we develop policy and simply trying to repackage it in a new way. Um, we know that that is not working any longer in our Canadian healthcare system. There are too many people falling mm -hmm. through the cracks. And so that ability to lead from a, a space of compassion and empathy, and I'm sure you're a reader of Brene Brown. I'm, I'm definitely a, a, a <laughs> fan of hers. Yes. Um, that's where I, I come from in this space, this, this idealism that I have of being gently fierce and this value base that I have that um, as a leader, um, I'm not going to settle. I'm not going to fall back into our status quo, into what, where we're comfortable. Um, I want to keep us in the space of disruption. So the other thing I'd like to talk about is what I call shift disruptor. Um, not to be mistaken mm -hmm. with the other word. <laughs> we're adding an <laughs> F in there. Um, yes. <laughs> and so shift disruption, like how do we disrupt, but disrupt in a positive way and disrupt in a way that's going to allow us to, to think a little bit differently. And there's lots, as you know, Leah, there's lots of, um, of really creative ways now, design thinking, experience-based co-design, um, patient experience, journey mapping. There's lots of ways to do this now that are not typical of our, of our, of our typical patterns of leadership. Yeah. So when you think of shift to disruption, how does that tie in with the work that you're doing now? Um, the work I'm doing now, uh, I would say, is two steps backward from where we were eight months ago, pre-COVID. Okay. Um, and so what I am doing now is trying to rebuild what patient engagement and partnership looked like across the healthcare system before mid-March of 2020. Um, we lost a lot of momentum in this space. Um, we reverted back to a very centralized theory of what the healthcare system looked like. We became unpatient-centered and unpatient-partnered. We reverted back to command tables and structures um, that were highly centralized around very specific voices. 
and so the shift disruption now is to shift us back and to help those who have kind of become very centralized in their thinking to remind them that um, we had advanced past that. And in advancing past that, we had seen great improvements in patient experience, patient harm, patient safety, patient outcomes, many of the indicators of a patient-centered and partnered healthcare system. Um, and I fully realize that we're dealing with, quote unquote, unprecedented times, right? You know, we're pivoting, mm -hmm. all those really great COVID words. I mean, we, <laughs> yes. really, it truly is unprecedented. Um, but I think now six to eight months in, we're recognizing that um, what we had abandoned um, in a rush to, to respond very, very quickly to a, a quickly emerging pandemic is really what's going to help to right the ship again. And mm. so it's, it's shift disruption 2.0, I guess, is what I'm championing now, bringing patient family caregivers back to the table, bringing family caregivers back into hospital care, long-term care, congregate care settings, where they belong because they add value to the healthcare system and to the care of patients bringing patient family caregivers back to policy decision-making tables to collaborate and co-design and partner, um, and certainly supporting this emergence of what we're talking about today, which is really the emergence of patient partners in leadership roles. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you mentioned about that idea that things are just re repackaged. The way we've worked before is repackaged. What do we need to do then to change that pattern? How do we change people's mindsets? How do we change their thinking? You know, I find healthcare very competitive by nature. Um, you've got a lot of really smart and intelligent people in healthcare, you know, doctors, very smart people, um, hospital CEOs and VPs, uh, people working in, in public policy at ministries of health and regional health authorities. I mean, very smart, well-educated, competitive people. Now, I come from an athletic background, so I'm a competitive athlete. I've competed at the university level. I've competed at the national and, and world level and, and uh, in, 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 um, in sport. And what I would say about athletes um, is that we don't like to be overshadowed by anybody else. Like we see, you know, that that runner next to us um, who's running a marathon moving a little bit faster, a runner that we're accustomed to running with, um, we, we want to up our game. And I see the same in the healthcare system. I see them wanting to up their game. I see them being competitive with one another. I see what the one hospital sort of seeing that another is advancing in, you know, a better techniques of digital health or improving um, patient access to, the, to their digital health information. Or in this time of COVID, starting to bring in family caregivers again and reintegrating them as, as, as essential care partners. Um, there's a competitive aspect there. There's an aspect of, of, of wanting to, to sort of do the same or follow suit. And so what I look for mm. is our leaders who are prepared to, to, to be in that space first, right? To take that first step and to work with them, support with them, to disrupt that space. And then I feel as, as you create more momentum, as you create more uh, patterns of people adopting um, patient engagement and partnership and co-design and collaboration as a principal value of how they operate either their hospital or their health authority or their organization that others will follow suit. And oftentimes when I'm giving mm -hmm. talks, uh, this is what I'll reflect upon and, and I'll challenge them. Well, did you know that the Canadian Medical Association now has a patient and family advisory council? Or did you know that the Royal College of Physician Surgeons is talking about how they can bring um, patient engagement principles into their own organization? And as soon as you start to talk about these other organizations that are doing this work, 
you create the head tilt, I call it. The audience sort of tilts <laughs> their heads and they're like, oh, uh-huh. right? They're yeah. doing that. How can I do that? I should be doing that. What does that look like? If I'm not doing that, my organization is going to fall behind. Mm. So I like creating that competitive space in leadership. I mean, that's how the leaders have gotten there. They're, they're competitive, passionate people. And so building on that competitiveness, that passion, that striving to do better, I think is what's going to advance this work. From what you're saying is that it really inspires them to uh, not only maybe keep up with the pack, but surpass that pack. Um, and as you said, that fear of, of maybe missing out on this aspect and recognizing that they need to step up their game in terms of um, patient family caregivers and, and what that means. Um, so you mentioned about COVID has really set you back eight months in terms of integrating uh, family caregivers. I'm wondering if that's the biggest challenge that you find with the work that you do, or, or is there something else that's maybe more pressing for you? Yeah, I, I certainly think that one of the biggest challenges facing the, that global effort of engagement and, and partnering with patient families and caregivers um, is the, the lack of um, um, opportunity to do that right now in a time of COVID because things are moving quickly. Um, there's constantly evolving information. There are um, a lot of different people at the quote unquote tables. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just seeing that in Canada, Leah, we're seeing that in, in the US, we're seeing that with um, our partners in the UK, um, our, our partners in engagement in, in Australia, and, and you know, these are um, areas of the, of, the, of the world where patient engagement partnership has really sort of landed. Um, they're struggling as well. Um, I, I, to go back to your question about is that my primary focus right now? I mean, I think it certainly is, right? Coaching that, mentoring that, bringing that back, finding new pockets and opportunities. Because right now, maybe it's not the right time to be pressing um, um, certain areas of the healthcare system um, on this. You know, certainly we'll, we'll, we'll keep supporting, we'll keep offering support. Um, but maybe there are other spaces where we can um, engage in the conversation about engagement and partnership. And so, for example, um, um, medical schools are starting to think through what does it look like to partner with patient families and caregivers, not just in having them come in and tell their stories, mm-hmm. but maybe to partner in curriculum development and curriculum design and even curriculum delivery. And what would it look like to have mentorship or shadowing programs in our schools of medicine where patient partners are really sharing their lived experience and helping to shape our, our, our learners, but also those that are continuing on with their medical education. Mm. And so maybe, um, maybe that's a space right now where we can um, spend a bit more time. Um, not to say that it's not important for our active healthcare sector, our, our hospitals, our long-term care sector, our, our ministries of health and regional health authorities. They really should still be, you know, valuing this principle of patient engagement and partnership. But I think there's other opportunities that are presenting themselves in the time of COVID where we can, you know, um, not add to the noise, so to speak, but advance um, patient engagement and patient partnership. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, what occurs to me, Julia, as you're speaking, as I think back to uh, my own experience as a frontline nurse uh, from my student days but right into uh, my working days and uh, thinking about my own exposure 
uh, if you will, to patient family caregiver experiences, the role. Um, and I do remember there was maybe a little bit that was touched upon, but it was certainly not to the extent that it needs to be. And I think about how my own professional practice would have changed if perhaps I had a greater understanding and more context around uh, patient family caregiver uh, experience and and again the role that they play um, the critical role that they play in um, in the situation and in the experience and one of the things that stood out to me earlier about your story around Kate was you said there was a lot of people who wanted to uh, do things to her or for her, but not with her. And I think that's a very powerful perspective. Um, So what I'm wondering then with that being said is what is your hope around all of this? What, What possibilities exist out there? I'd really like to change how patients and their most essential care partners, which are usually their family caregivers or their trusted caregivers, I'd like to really change that relationship um, with their healthcare providers, so with their physicians and their nurses. Um, I want it to be um, uh, uh, founded on a, on, a, on a space of partnership and trust and collaboration and openness and transparency. And, uh, and as you said, I characterize that as doing together uh, or doing with and less of doing two or doing four. Um, and I think that requires a lot of coaching, mm-hmm. a lot of mentoring. I think it requires um, engaging early with our medical school learners, but also making sure that, you know, our physicians who are, you know, um, senior residents or attendings or specialists, uh, also have the opportunity to continue to to think through um, their principles of how they engage and partner with their patients. Um, that's really, you know, w- one of the ultimate goals that I have is to is to change um, what that relationship looks like because I've seen it where it's a high functioning, trustful, open and transparent relationship, and I've seen it where it's quite the opposite, mm-hmm. um, and experienced it, not just seen it. Right. I think the other thing that I'd really like to shift, and so that's really at that fundamental level, right? That one-to-one um, partnership and care. I think the other thing I'd really like to shift is how we think about the healthcare system in terms of its structure um, from, a, from a policy and practice point of view, but a, a structural point of view. We structure the healthcare system around healthcare providers and, work, and what works for them and, and, and for healthcare system leaders or people who work within the system. We structure it to make it work for them. We don't structure it to make it work for patients, families, and caregivers. Mm-hmm. We simply don't. The system is not integrated. It's disconnected. We have no flow of information that's well-coordinated. In fact, patients have to fight to get their health information, Leah. Mm -hmm. If I had a patient portal right now and I had a diagnostic test that was done a few days ago and the results are available, in some instances, I cannot access that information until my doctor says it's okay. Right, yeah. And that's wrong. And so the system is structured for the provider and for the people that work in the system. And only by actively, actively collaborating, co-designing, and sharing power with patients, families, and caregiver from all walks of the healthcare system. So we really have to take an equity, diversity, and inclusivity lens here, really from all ages, 
all demographics, all social determinants of health, um, not just the English-speaking white middle-aged women like me, um, <laughs> everybody, um, and, and really doing it in an authentic and meaningful way. Um, I can't tell you how many times I filled out, you know, surveys from the hospital. How was your ambulatory care experience in this clinic? Or how was your inpatient experience on, you know, floor 4C? Right. Um, That's not authentic and meaningful. So I'm really talking about authentic and meaningful collaboration engagement. Only in doing that are we going to shift the system in a way that's really working for everyone. We talk a lot about things like value-based integrated care right? I'm sure you've heard that term Mm -hmm. or patient centered and partnered care or, um, you know, the the four pillars of, of an engagement capable environment. We talk about these things a lot. Um, but we keep talking about them with sort of the same people at the table. And so this is what I'm constantly challenging the environment to think about is what if you brought in other people with different perspectives, um, and who are very much engaged in the healthcare system. And that's your patients, families, and caregivers. Yeah. Well, and I think you raise a, an excellent point around when we're having the discussions with the same people at the, the table, of course, nothing is going to change. And what I'm wondering is, from your experience, what are the stories that healthcare professionals tell themselves to keep things status quo, either consciously or maybe unconsciously? That's a great question. Um, I know, and I think um, we should ask those healthcare providers what their what their narrative is. <laughs> um, you know, and there's some there's some existing yeah. narratives out there, right? Like we we talk a lot. Um, we, yeah. we talk a lot about um, the narrative that when well, we can't really bring patients, families, and caregivers into this board conversation about, you know, I don't know, quality improvement or whatever it might be, because are they going to understand? Are they going to be able to keep up? Will they understand the language? We're going to have to give them context, like lots of excuses of myths or barriers to patient engagement, patient partnership. And, you know, I often will refer to what, what is, um, is often called the mosaic approach, meaning that there are different, many different levels of engagement and partnership with patients, families, and caregivers. And just like in any other sector, some people have more of an affinity to some conversations and, and others would rather be part of a focus group or a survey or, or offering feedback in a different context. And others want to be collaborators and partners and, and leaders. And they've got skill sets and, you know, and, and sort of personal um, um, abilities that lend them to that. Um, and so, you know, those myths and those barriers, those narratives that come up um, by the providers and the healthcare leaders, they, they really are just that. They're, they're myths right? There's, there's lots of ability Mm -hmm. to engage here. Mm -hmm. I think um, another part of the narrative by providers and healthcare leaders is that, you know, we really have to, to um, um, uh, design systems that are going to work for, um, you know, for, from an efficiency or an economically viable point of view, right? So uh, although they might have four pillars in front of them and, and patient experience being one equal part of that pie, they tend to emphasize, you know, um, the, the, the economic side of it or the, the financial efficiency side of it, or they might emphasize, um, you know, the, 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 um, the strategic functioning of it from a point of view of what integrates well for, for healthcare system leaders or providers, right? And then, well, this is going to work better for the patients because it's working better yeah. for the physicians. So I, I just think that there's, there's break, it's, it's that shift disruption. There's breaking that mold. And the only way that you can do that is by challenging your assumptions. 
And um, I don't think we always do that well in the healthcare system. Mm. And, and, and to your point, we, it's important to have those people that we currently have around the table at the table. They're very important. I don't want to get rid of them. I don't want to tell mm-hmm. them you're not important. You shouldn't be at this table. But the problem is that we're not invite, we're not challenging those assumptions of those people at the table. Um, and we're not thinking through the, a, a couple mm-hmm. of different ways of thinking through um, what this might look like uh, from a design point of view. And, and design thinking hasn't been something that's been really applied to the hospital environment. It's been very sort of medical centric. Mm-hmm right? Mm-hmm. Um, and medicine is important. That metal, medical side is very important, but it has not been balanced um, with other perspectives. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I would, I would argue too that in some instances, physicians are probably, and nurses are probably feeling left out of conversations as well, right? Sometimes it's the policy folks at a, at a ministry level or a medical officer of health or regional health authority level that are making decisions and the doctors are feeling left out and, and they know they've got something to share. So it's that idea of inclusivity, and it's not easy to do. I can attest to that because I do this professionally, but it's essential. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not going to be effective, and you're going to create uh, gaps that, and holes that, quite frankly, people are going to fall through. And we're seeing that right now in a time of COVID in our social fabric. We're seeing the massive effects on children huge effects on kids with some of our policies around COVID mm-hmm. on persons who are homeless, on persons who live in long-term care, our elderly, and persons with disabilities. Those mm-hmm. communities are highly affected by the policies that we had in place pre-COVID and that we're putting in place during times of COVID. And when you hear those uh, of those effects, it's, it's very heartbreaking the impact is just so significant. And I think, you know, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg right now in terms of the impact of of those policies in this time of COVID. Um, I think there's so much more that's below the waterline that we're going to be seeing down the road. So when you think of what you wish healthcare professionals would understand about the lived experience. What is it? It's the individuality of it. There's not one specific thread about the lived experience other than it can, it can help to shape conversation a different way. It can help to change the lens, the perspective from what you're, you're viewing, whatever it is that you're, you're putting in place or the decisions that you're taking or, or the narrative that you've constructed, but it's the individuality Healthcare is extremely individual. We can't get away from that. And I'm sure some listeners will be saying, okay, well, fair enough, but we can't, you know, have this individual system that caters to every single individual patient and family and their needs. And my argument is, why can we not? We should. We should be we should be supporting people in their individuality. We should be supporting patients who can really take on um, um, a leadership role in their own care. And if they've got the skill and the ability to do some care at home or to do some assessment at home or to really be um, more of a, a higher, higher engaged partner in their care, then we should be supporting that. If we have a patient who needs a bit more coaching, a bit more mentoring, a bit more direct, you know, one-to-one interaction with their provider because they're unsure or they might not have the same skill or ability or education to, to take that leadership in their care, then we should be supporting them in the way that they need to be supported. Um, their healthcare is individual. Um, I look at my daughter's rare disease. She has a rare form. She had a rare form of mitochondrial disease called SIFD. SIFD diagnosed in Kate is very much different from SIFD diagnosed in another child. 
It's a genetic um, deficiency of the TRNT1 gene. It manifests differently in every single child diagnosed. And so how you treat Kate is different how you treat another child. And how you treat another child um, might not work for Kate. And in fact, that's actually what contributed to her death. We took, um, 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 we decided to embark on a journey with a bone marrow transplant that had worked for other children because Kate is an individual. She's so different. Her disease manifested differently. She didn't survive that stem cell transplant. She encountered complications that the other children did not. And that's that individuality of care right down to the cellular level. But it also can be elevated to that social level, that you know, familial level, that um, skills and ability, the, own, the, the individual. And so no one can tell me that healthcare cannot be and should not be individualized. It fundamentally is. Um, and, and I think that's you know, really the, the baseline that we need to operate from. We, 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 be, we became generalists with our healthcare system and, and are approaching everyone in a general way, and it's simply not working. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the uh, approach to becoming generalists became arose from the place of standardization. And, you know, I love your perspective of, well, why can't we? Why can't we have that individualized care? And that idea that a lot of healthcare providers will say, well, we can't do that uh, for every single person. Well, that's, that's a narrative that they're telling themselves. That's that assumption. That's that story because they haven't done it before, because we haven't tried it. Um, we haven't invested in that individualized approach. So in closing, Julie, I'm wondering, what do you see healthcare leaders? And when I say healthcare leaders, I mean individuals, providers at all levels. What do they need to do to advocate for and support patients, families, and caregivers? I love that question. I get asked that question often, Leah, and I'm sitting here with a big smile uh, because it doesn't have to be difficult and it doesn't have to be overcomplicated. Step number one is have a broader conversation with the patients you work with right now. Ask them a little bit more about themselves. Ask them how that treatment plan is working for them. What does their home life look like? Are they getting adequate supports and timely supports from home care? And if not, what are the hiccups and the challenges or the pains that they're, that they're facing in that respect? Get a bit more information about their patient experience and their journey. And it, it'll help you fill in blanks about uh, how you're providing care and how you're structuring care for that patient. It's going to make the care more efficient and more effective. Um, for, for, per, and then, and then elevating that to a systems level, you know, think about who you have at the tables, um, where you are having meetings and where you are making decisions and where you're structuring, you know, the design of your, of your healthcare organization, your hospital, your long-term care home, um, uh, who's involved in that, who's helping to develop that and try to get, unpack yourself from the space of having the quote unquote experts at the table right? Um, Who are the experts? Who has the knowledge? Who has the lived experience? How do you balance data with story? And and challenge yourself to hear things from a different perspective or in a new way. And think about, um, you know, even better if. We've got this right now, but it would be even better if we tried X, Y, or Z. 
think about incremental change. Mm. Um, I'll often say when I'm talking to healthcare leaders who I put patient engagement and partnership in front of them and I, I put the IAP2 framework and I put the Carmen framework of the spectrum of engagement and I think they feel overwhelmed. And I'll say to them, when you leave this conference today or this talk or whatever it might be or this meeting, what's the one thing you can change when you go back to your organization? Is it adding um, a guiding principle into your value space in your organization around patient engagement and patient partnership? Is it inviting a patient partner, preferably two or more, to your quality improvement table? Is it creating a spot on your boards of directors that is very focused on lived experience as a skill and ability as part of your board matrix? Um, what is that one incremental change mm. that you can make? And then after you've made that one incre incremental change and you've gotten a bit comfortable with it, shift, disrupt yourself again and make the next incremental change. And if you're not sure what the next possible change is, give me a call or an email. I'll be happy to help. <laughs> That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Julie. I just, I, I love what you're saying about even better if. I think that just really sums up uh, this whole work that We've got a lot of good things going for us and it can be even better if. So thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your story and your wisdom, uh, your knowledge, your insights. Um, this has been just such a fascinating conversation and uh, I just really appreciate your time and you being willing to to offer this to, to all of us because I think this is such an important conversation to have. So thank you. Well, I'm really happy to share, Leah, and I really enjoyed the conversation too. And, and I also appreciate you asking about Kate. As hard as it is to talk about her, I appreciate sharing her with, with all of you. Mm, thank you so much. That's wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us today at Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare. Also, if you like what you heard, please head on over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. Be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. We'd love to get to know you on social media, so check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.